Heavenly Father, we do indeed uh, thank and praise you for your incredible love to us. We thank you for your gospel of grace, uh, that out of uh, sheer love uh, you appeared in your Son, redeemed us, uh, transformed us uh, from enemies, from those enslaved and deceived, uh, from those disobedient uh, to those who are in your family. And so, Father, we do indeed praise you for your love, and we pray now as you speak to us again that you would give us hearts that are humble before your word. Uh, Give us hearts willing to listen carefully uh, as you speak, Uh, hearts willing to speak that word faithfully to others, hearts willing to guard that word, this word of grace. Uh, We pray all of this for your glory. Amen. And please take a seat. And we're in uh, Titus again as we continue our series uh, looking at uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, letter to Titus, uh, a gospel worker in uh, the city of Crete. And we're in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 to 16 uh, today, which is page 1198 of the Church Bibles. And uh, just on the back of the service sheet, you'll see an outline of where we're going as we look at that uh, passage together, if that's helpful for you. As you're uh, finding Titus chapter 1, 10 to 16, uh, let me tell you of three great loves that have been rekindled this week as I prepared uh, this passage, prepared for this sermon. The first of them is this, it's simply Titus chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Let me read it to you. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. I love those words. They are precious, wonderful words handed down by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the nations, the Apostle to people like you and I, handed down to him by the risen Lord Jesus. Now these words in uh, Titus 1, 1 to 3 are a message from our God. They are words that speak of his purpose, a purpose in a world like ours, his purpose quite simple, salvation. That's the business that our God is in, in a world like ours. These are words from God, our saviour. They are words that bring knowledge of the truth, we're told in verse 1. Truth that we so desperately need. Truth that is not just pointless truth, but truth that makes sense of everything in life. Without this knowledge of the truth, we are living in the dark. But with these words spoken, with this gospel spoken, it's like someone has walked into our life and ripped back the curtains and exposed our life for what it was before our God. Exposed, as we saw last week, uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 3 of this letter, a life that was before God foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved. That's what this gospel exposes in us. But it is also a word that rips back the curtains and shows us new life, life that we could barely imagine was possible, wonderful life, the good life, eyes open life, heart filled life, hope filled life. Life, as we saw again in that wonderful description of this gospel in chapter 3 of Titus, where the kindness and love of our God is is not just a myth, not just an idea that we like to speak about, but it's very, very real. Because God himself has shown up. He has appeared. He He has been God with us in Jesus Christ. 
the good life where none can condemn me, absolutely no one. For before the God who made me and will judge me, I am clean. I'm justified. That's what this gospel tells me. That's the truth it tells me. It tells me of life that will not end in death. For this God who is my father has promised me eternal life and he does not lie. And so I love these words, this knowledge of the truth. I love what our God is doing through this message. Did you see it there again in 1 verse 1? God is using this knowledge of the truth, the gospel of grace, to bring salvation in the deepest and fullest sense. Now you see that we're not just saved from slavery to sin and death, as wonderful as that would be, but we're saved for life. We're saved for godliness. Titus 1 verse 1, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That is the beating heart of this letter. This is a message that takes us uh, as creatures who were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved and leads us towards godliness, towards being creatures who look like our creator. Uh, This gospel, this knowledge of the truth is the most powerful agent of change this world has ever known, ever will know. The more our hearts and minds hear this knowledge of the truth resting on hope, the more we will be changed, enabled by this hope, empowered by this hope to do what is good, we're told in this letter. And so there's the first thing that I have had my love for rekindle this week, these words of grace, words strong to change us. And that's the second thing that has been rekindled this week, the second love, us, this church. I love this church. I love that this church is built on this very knowledge of the truth, that this is a church resting on this hope given by a God who doesn't lie. This is a gospel-soaked church. And we together, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever imagined yourself this way, but we together are a network of gospel-speaking relationships. That's who we are to one another. Brothers and sisters who carry this message, this gospel to each other. And we do that together on a Sunday, both here formally and uh, over tea and coffee across the way. We do it in our small groups. We do it in our informal conversations in the street. Uh, We are applying this knowledge of the truth to real life with the purpose of bringing about godliness in one another. Which brings me to the third love that has been rekindled this week. I love my job in this church. I love it. I'm exhausted by it, yes, Uh, Often feeling inadequate for it, yes, but I love my job. For even on the days when I've come up well short of my or other people's expectations, even on the days uh, I collapse into bed having worked every waking hour in the day, it's still with a deep sense of satisfaction that the day has been worthwhile. Because as an elder appointed in this church family, I have an incredibly privileged job. And my job is simple. Uh, to be one of those who lead the process of carrying this gospel to the church family faithfully. And my task is to prayerfully teach uh, this gospel of grace, this knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, that was faithfully handed down to me, faithfully handed down to us, I am to faithfully hand it on. And my job is to be unapologetically so in the gospel during the week that it is changing my heart. And we saw that last week with the elder being someone who has to be someone who is changed by this gospel. To be so sure of this promised hope that I am formed and fashioned into the likeness of my king. And to be so confident in this knowledge of the truth resting on hope that I will speak it faithfully 
that I won't be afraid to say it just as it is. Really, uh, all the way through the New Testament, if you want a description of uh, what the teaching elders of this church, uh, those appointed to proclaim the gospel, uh, what their role is, they are the drinks waiters of the church. Uh, Those who, in verse 9, faithfully, steadily hold out this message, serve others with it. Teaching, uh, we're told in verse 9, simply what was taught by the apostle. Uh, nothing, Nothing less, nothing more. And that's the task of the elder. And as we've seen in Titus so far, Paul is charging Titus with the task of appointing elders for the churches in Crete. And in verse 9, we see their role quite simply put there. It is, as I said just now, to teach as they have been taught. That's their job. And if you look at the end of verse 9, the verse before the passage we're we're looking at uh, this morning, you'll see that that role, teaching what they've been taught, has two responsibilities, two actions that they'll need the gospel for. Here's the first of them. They are to encourage others with the gospel. Encouragement, is a, it's a wonderful uh, Greek word. It's got uh, sort of two parts to it. Encourage means to bring comfort to the heart of another person. And the gospel can do that. But also to give courage to the heart of another person, to be more than they imagine they could be. This is a gospel that brings change. Uh, but secondly, there is another, another responsibility. Do you see it there at the end of verse 9, what they are to use this gospel for? To refute those who oppose the gospel. To refute those who contradict or deny the gospel by their teaching. My task is to be one who contends for this gospel. Contends against those who would teach anything other than the knowledge of the truth. Uh, Who would speak a gospel that opposes this gospel of grace. I am to refute their teaching. Uh, Yes, I am to use the gospel to wholeheartedly build up this church to encourage us. But just as passionately I am to demolish the teaching of those who would teach anything else. But here's my suspicion. My suspicion is that many of us, uh, myself uh, uh, for many years, uh, would find the elder who is active in this second role, refuting opponents of the gospel, as a somewhat uh, unpleasant, uh, prickly, narrow, unloving character. Uh, Perhaps someone who is unnecessarily obsessed with the peripheral concerns that others might teach about or obsessed with negativity. And distracted from the real job, which is encouraging people and forever being contentious. I mean, who wants that? And there are many reasons why we might find an elder who is doing this role, refuting those who oppose the gospel as a a difficult character. Perhaps we feel it represents for us the worst fault of the Christian church, a judgmental, negative, and we fear that. I mean, what if I bring an unbeliever along uh, next uh, Sunday and uh, the, the elder is going off on one of these contentious, negative spiels? Or perhaps we feel it's too personal. Uh, when an elder names someone teaching falsely, when we find it hard that it's no longer just a general idea that there's false teaching out there, that the, it's made very specific and personal. Or perhaps we might think that false teaching is not such a great threat after all. Perhaps it was in the past or it may be elsewhere. And to be obsessed with refuting it is to be, well, too controlling and uh, fearful and narrow. But here's the thing. Do you trust your God? Do you trust his word to you in the scriptures? Because if we do, we must heed the clear and present instruction to 
of those appointed as elders in our church to hold firmly to this trustworthy message as they were taught and to, yes, refute those who oppose it. It's a call echoed loud and clear in the ordination service for presbyters, for elders in the Book of Common Prayer, where the bishop says to them, ask them this, will you be ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to God's word? Will you be ready to do that? Well, today's passage, verses 10 to 16, declares to us that it is simply not good enough for an elder to fail in that duty. For the church exists in the real world, a world marked, as we saw in 3 verse 3, by foolishness and rebellion and deceit and enslavement. A world that is constantly influencing the teaching of the church. You see that in verse 12 of our passage, the the culture of Crete that was starting to permeate the churches. Today's passage is written, I think, to wake us up to the vital need of elders to not only encourage with the gospel, but also to refute that which contradicts the gospel. Can you remember the flow of the letter so far? The first four verses of chapter 1 have shown us the remarkable path the gospel takes, this powerful gospel leading to change, leading to godliness. And then in verses 5 to 9, we see this call to appoint elders to teach as they were taught, to encourage and refute. And all of chapters 2 and 3, virtually all of chapters 2 and 3, is going to be given over to what it looks like to use the gospel to encourage Uh, But here in chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, uh, we see this present danger that must be dealt with. And it's not a small danger. Have a look at verse 10. There are many, verse 10, who, verse 11, are teaching what they ought not to teach. So there's their instruction, teachers they've been taught, and here are many in the churches in Crete teaching what they literally must not teach, a false gospel. They've taken this knowledge of the truth and they've twisted it. They've denied it in some shape or form. And really, false teaching, uh, false gospels take on uh, two main forms. There are false gospels that sort of reduce the gospel down, that sort of pull out key parts of the gospel, perhaps because we think they're uh, unappealing and uh, people won't respond to the gospel if we teach them. An example of that is a recent book by a well-known American pastor, Rob Bell, known for his NUMA series, a series of videos, very engaging videos. He's written a book called Love Wins, which essentially removes the concept of hell and judgment out of the gospel. Hugely appealing, but it's not the gospel. And then there is a different form of false gospel which uh, doesn't reduce the gospel, it actually adds to it, adds other burdens on top of the knowledge of the truth, on top of the gospel of grace, the things that we need to do to be sure that we will be saved. Uh, It's this uh, second uh, false gospel that Paul is especially mindful of in Crete, uh, those who add extra burdens on top of the gospel of grace as we'll see in just a moment. And as it is in uh, Sheffield and uh, the UK that there is false teaching in the church, so it was in Crete. And for this reason, Paul instructs Titus to appoint leaders, yes, to encourage, but also to do this vital work of refuting this false teaching. And essentially, this passage, as you can see on the outline, is going to enable us to do th- three things. Firstly, to expose false teaching for what it is. Secondly, to feel the weight of its effect on the church. And thirdly, to see what must be done. Well, firstly, exposing false teaching for what it is. 
in the midst of uh, the churches that Paul and Titus have planted together throughout Crete, that have they've brought the gospel to Crete and churches have been uh, established there, now many false teachers are in those churches. didn't take long. And many of them are there, godless teachers, teaching uh, untruth. And teaching untruth, representing a God uh, who does not lie and yet telling lies. And so let's meet them. And we'll find that they're not that unfamiliar. Let's see how they're described in verse 10. There's three descriptions of them there. Firstly, they are rebellious, literally disloyal, not responsive to the command that was given back in verse 3. There's, if you like with the gospel, a chain of command. The risen Lord Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth, commands the apostle to teach this message. Nothing else, teach this message. He, in turn, commands... Uh, Titus, he in turn commands these teachers. There is a clear chain of command and at the top of that chain of command is the king of heaven and earth. And they are rebelling against his command. To teach other than the apostolic gospel is to kick yourself free from the authority of the risen Jesus. And really that's the heart of sin, isn't it? The heart of sin is autonomy of thought to say, I am not going to go with what God thinks, I'm going to go with what I think. Now this is what happens when the one who teaches becomes a law unto themselves. They no longer teach under the submission of under submission to the word of God. They're no longer governed by God's thoughts. No, their own thoughts have taken the throne. Now I've been present in uh, many a meeting uh, in, uh, in in the wider church uh, where uh, those uh, who are charged with the job of uh, being elders in the church of teaching this gospel. Discuss doctrine as if uh, their own authority, not the word of God, is what matters most. To discuss the truth of the gospel as if God, the God who does not lie, has left the building. As if his word, his view on these things does not matter anymore. Such thinking and, and the teaching that comes from it is teaching that rebels against the God of grace and his trustworthy message built on this promised hope. So they're rebellious. Secondly, they are mere talkers. Filled with hot air is what Paul calls them. Maybe impressive hot air. You know, the sort of smoke and mirrors type of hot air. Impressive intellect, impressive words, persuasive words. But their talk in the end is mere speculation, mere words. And because it's mere words, it's fruitless words. These are words that lead nowhere. These are words that build nothing. You remember back in chapter 1 what the proclamation of the knowledge of the truth is meant to do? It's meant to bring godliness. It's meant to bring change. It's meant to build the good life. Uh, here are words that do none of those things. When our God speaks his true word, things get created, recreated. But when a teacher teaches other than the knowledge of the truth, the tree that is built is barren, no fruit. A teacher in themselves uh, has no power to grow anything, no matter how impressive they are. God grows things by the word of his grace. Only he can do that. Only the gospel grows people. So they're rebellious, uh, they're mere talkers, and thirdly, they're deceivers. Again, literally, it says they're self-deceived. That's where it begins. They genuinely think they are teaching the truth. But in being self-deceived, they then deceive others. So instead of leading people to the knowledge of the truth, they lead them away from the truth, away from the hope offered by the God who doesn't lie. So that's how they describe. But Paul goes a step further in verse 10. He identifies them. 
And more than just a, a general description of false teaching, Paul is not afraid to point the finger. Verse 10, he says, especially the circumcision group. Now what's amazing about him saying that is that while this is a letter written to Titus, it would have been a letter read out in the churches in Crete. And so you can imagine that moment, can't you, as he's speaking about these false teachers who are rebellious, who are mere talkers, who are deceivers, especially the circumcision group, who would have been there hearing that message, wriggling in their pews, no doubt. Yes, I'm talking about you. He's not afraid to do so because of what they're teaching. And if you turn to verse 14, you'll see uh, two aspects of their teaching that are highlighted for us. Firstly, they are obsessed with Jewish myths. Uh, it's difficult to know exactly what this is talking about, but more than likely it's uh, referring to stories that were created around uh, minor Old Testament characters. And some argue that these mythical stories contain secret knowledge, important knowledge that we needed to really know our God. Now, Paul deals with the same thing in uh, his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, their teaching involved sort of speculation based on uh, weird interpretations of obscure Old Testament verses that all of a sudden became the very centre of their gospel. But in the end, it's a false gospel that has at its heart human teaching based not on the knowledge of the truth of God, but on myth. Here's a God who doesn't lie, and yet their teaching is based on myth. And I reckon in our own experience you can see how such teaching can influence the church. It has come about from time to time as uh, speculations on Old Testament characters become uh, really important to us. Uh, there was one, I think it was back in the 90s, there was a, a popular book called The Prayer of Jabez that uh, takes one verse from the Bible, one verse completely out of context and uh, built a whole mantra around it. If you pray the prayer that Jabez prayed, you will be prosperous uh, you pray this prayer and it is how to access God's blessing. If you've never experienced God's blessing, just pray this prayer. All of a sudden, the mighty hope that uh, Titus chapter 1 speaks of, the hope that holds up this knowledge of the truth, the hope of eternal life, the hope of seeing our God again, be, seeing him face to face, is reduced to a pathetic dream of getting more stuff or a better job. And so you can buy the book, The Prayer of Jabez, you can buy the coffee mug, the tea towel, you name it. And so it wasn't just in Crete that these things happened. But then there's a second aspect of their false teaching, the commands, uh, more literally the human commands. Their, their teaching uh, centred around mere human rules that became the benchmark for godliness. They weren't confident that this gospel, this knowledge of the truth could lead to godliness. You needed these extra rules. This is based on the deception that we can actually do something to secure or sustain our relationship with God ourselves. Human commands can seem sensible, don't, can't they? Human rules, they can seem empowering to us. Uh, but in another of Paul's letters, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, we're told there that they have no power to deal with ungodliness. No power to change us for good. And most importantly, if you look in verse 14, you see why these human commands are so powerless. They are based on a heart that rejects the truth. Rejects the truth that I was saved by grace, that I am sustained by grace, that I will be changed by grace. It is his work, not mine. And if you flick to chapter 3 in Titus, you see that wonderful articulation of the gospel we saw last week in Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 8. And what is abundantly clear in that um, proclamation of the gospel is that I am not the doer of my salvation. 
I'm not the hero of this story. Jesus is. My God is. He was kind. He loves. He appeared. He saved. He was merciful. He washes me clean. He renews me. He pours his spirit into me. He justified me. He gave me hope. I'm not the hero. What makes me think I would be the one who would lead to my own growth, changing my own life? Human commands, commands not founded on the truth of a promised certain hope, commands that in the end erode certainty, leaving us anxious and not comforted or courageous. But we love rules. And so it's easy to see why such false teaching was so persuasive in Crete. Commands seem sensible, don't they? Helpful even. Helpful in our battle with sin or uh, trying to be godly. Maybe I need a rule. But Paul says such commands, when not founded on the gospel of grace, have no power to teach us to be that other than what we already are, ungodly. Rules don't change hearts. Rules can't curb flesh. Only the knowledge of the truth of God's grace, resting on hope, has the power to do that. Now, these mere human commands, we're told in verse 15, uh, in the end give us a false confidence of purity, of godliness. But in the end, because it is not based on the knowledge of the truth, it corrupts everything. Every attempt to live the good life is rendered corrupt because it's based on a heart that does not believe that God's grace is enough. And in the end leads us to be, verse 16, unfit for doing anything good. One final thing to see about these false teachers as this passage exposes them, and that is their motive. You see it there in verse 11, why they are teaching these things? For the sake of dishonest gain. They're driven by greed. And it might have been money sometimes. Perhaps there were influential, uh, wealthy people in the church who wanted to hear certain things, and so that's what they taught. But there's other sort of dishonest gain that they might want to get from their teaching, isn't there? You think about the, the sort of reasons that somebody might teach a gospel other than the true gospel. Greed for attention. Greed for acceptance in the culture. Greed for perhaps a place at the table amongst the cultural elite. So there is the false teaching. Let's secondly feel the weight of its effect. I suspect there is a chance that many of us have uh, got the idea, as I said earlier, that false teaching is uh, no longer a great threat to the church or especially our church life or the lives of Christians within this church. And you see that sort of sense that it's not a big deal in the lack of urgency uh, about uh, false teaching uh, in the leadership circles of uh, the wider Church of England. And there may be many here amongst us uh, as a church family who wonder what all the fuss would be about if this was a major aspect of our church life refuting uh, opposing gospels. It's the sort of thing that the, perhaps the, the lunatic fringe might do, but surely there are bigger worries for us as a church than this. Well, God says to us in this chapter, I want you to feel the weight of what happens in a church, a church that I shed my blood for, my bride, a church filled with those who I spoke hope to before the basement of time. I want you to see what happens when an opposing gospel gets a voice in a church like that. Here's what happens, says God in this passage. Feel the weight of this. Verse 11, that house, that church being built in the knowledge of truth, resting strong in true hope, that house is turned over, ruined, 
That house that was growing in grace, in the good life, in hospitality, in submission to one another, in love, in kindness, in integrity, in joy, in endurance, in false teaching comes in. And all of that is turned over, destroyed. It may be slow. It may be imperceptible, but the change of uh, teaching comes slowly, doesn't it? Change of emphasis in the sermons, in our small groups, in our parish council discussions, until one day you can't remember the place you once stood, the gospel. Now the famous quote goes like this, one generation proclaims the gospel, the next assumes the gospel, the next abandons the gospel. So quick to see whole households turned over by false teaching. False teaching ruins whole households, Paul says. When wondering if it is right or loving or urgent to refute false teaching, now feel the weight of what it does. Imagine this church, this church that we love. Imagine us coming here together in 50 years. Imagine we're all still alive in 50 years and we've come here together and this church lies in ruins. Oh, the building's still here, but now it's a set of boutique apartments for the gospel left long ago. It would be heartbreaking, wouldn't it? You think about all the work we're doing together, the way we are speaking this gospel to one another, the way we are planning for a future to speak it to even more people that they may be saved to. Wouldn't it be heartbreaking to come here and find this place in ruins? Well, as heartbreaking as it may be for us, it's not even a hint of how much it would break the heart of our God. This is his bride, his first love, his joy. Overturned and within generations uh, within a generation uh, the whole families within this church turned over as well by this false teaching false teaching that might have begun as a whisper that but grew so loud that it shouted down the truth paul says to titus that's already happening in crete titus this is urgent feel the weight titus and i think we need to as well for many churches in this land already lie in ruins for the same reason And if you're wondering if this is perhaps uh, too strong uh, a slant on things, uh, have a look uh, before we move to uh, what we must do about this, to God's verdict on this teaching. How does he view such teaching? Verse 16, three words, three phrases. Detestable. Why wouldn't he? This is his bride that is being turned over. Disobedient and unfit for doing anything good, not not a skerrick of good in it. Do you feel the weight of this? We need to, I need to, uh, our vicar Paul needs to, anyone charged with the role of being an elder here needs to. Uh, It's again as the the ordination service uh, for an elder in the Church of England warns this, it says this, have always therefore printed in your remembrance how great a treasure is committed to your charge For they are the sheep of Christ which he bought with his death and for whom he shed his blood. The church and the congregation whom you must serve is his spouse and his body. And if it shall happen that that same church or any member thereof do take any hurt or hindrance by reason of your negligence, ye know the greatness of the fault and also the horrible punishment that will ensue. Wherefore consider with yourselves the end of the ministry towards the children of God, towards the spouse and the body of Christ, And see that ye never cease your labour, your care and your diligence until you have done all that lieth in you according to your bounden duty to bring all such as are under your care 
unto the agreement in the faith and the knowledge of the truth of God and to the ripeness and perfectness of the age of age in Christ that there be left in none of you any error or viciousness in life that's serious isn't it so one final thing to look at and that is seeing what we must do it's a big question isn't it here's what Titus is told to do two things verse 11 is the first of them silence them Silence them for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. Silence false teaching. Now that's part of my job here. And uh, our vicar, Paul especially, and others appointed to the role of being a teaching elder in this church family is to silence false teaching. And that's going to involve a, a number of different things. But ultimately it means that when there is teaching that is influencing brothers and sisters in this church family, I am to work towards stopping that teaching. It's why we take great care who speaks in the pulpit here. We are guarding the gospel. It's why we are to take care of the influence that perhaps external teaching, whether it be books or popular preachers on the internet, may have on us as a church family. I am to speak against such teaching. My aim is to convince anybody who is influenced by that teaching to not listen to it anymore because this matters, doesn't it? My aim is to uh, contend against false teaching, to dissuade you from sitting under it. And if all of that seems over the top, let me encourage you again to feel the weight of false teaching's effect. It's why in our small groups we must take great care to ensure what is taught is the knowledge of the truth. It's why I work hard on the notes for the small group leaders. It's why we work hard in appointing people who will faithfully hold out that word. But let me say, if we are concerned by what is taught there, we are to silence it. And in that, there is a shared role, isn't there? I want to encourage you to get to know your gospel well. Learn to love the sound of it. Learn to be more and more confident in what God says in the knowledge of the truth, that you will be able to hear what is not that truth and if you are concerned uh, let me say speak to an elder speak to me speak to Paul it it doesn't mean that every strange idea you hear in a small group is false teaching Uh, we all have our strange ideas but uh, there is a need for discernment isn't there along with grace and gentleness and patience but not in action now we're not to be if you like uh, for one another the small group police forever looking for the slightly wrong phrased word But it does mean we are to pray for our leaders. I pray that we will see a pattern of healthy Bible teaching all across this church family. And it's only when that we see an ongoing pattern of the opposite, of teaching that is opposed to the gospel of grace, that we need to silence it. And let me say this, if you are somebody who finds your teaching in whatever context that might be, whether it's a small group leader, whether it's leading a kid's group across the way on a Sunday, if you're challenged in what you are teaching, that's okay. Be okay with that. This is important. It's actually a loving thing for a brother or sister to correct you because this matters. Every Wednesday we get together as a staff team and we have a preacher's lunch where the person planning to preach that Sunday explains what they're planning to say and uh, it often involves you getting, having your sermon pulled apart and it's in pieces on the floor by the end of the lunch and you've got to try and pick it back up together and let me say that's hard especially by Wednesday when you've worked hard by that stage to, to sort of totally change what you've done but it's important isn't it if this truth matters, if this truth leads to godliness so pray for your elders, pray for us 
But as we close, uh, let me say in this passage is another wonderful challenge, the other thing we must do. You see it there in verse 13. And uh, for me, this is the most important thing for us as evangelical Christians to show our true colours. We cannot just be defined by what we're not or what we're against or what we disagree with. We cannot be defined by silence. We are gospel people. We want the gospel to win, even false teachers. And so, verse 13, rebuke them sharply. But why? For their sake. Rebuke them that they will again be sound in healthy faith so that they will be sure in this hope. They will have a share in it. Rebuke them that they will be changed by this gospel of grace. That's our goal. There is a limit. Uh, We're told at the end of chapter 3 that there is a point if you warn a divisive brother again and again, after a while you are to have nothing to do with him. But our first objective is to win them back. For Titus, there is to be no territory in Crete that is forfeit. He wants to take Crete for the gospel, even those who are opposed to it. And we'll close there. Next week, uh, we will begin to explore the tremendous power of the gospel of grace, not only to refute, but also to encourage. uh, Encourage us to live lives in accord with this gospel. Uh, But for now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you do speak a word of grace, a word of truth, a truth that matters, truth that speaks of your wonderful forgiveness, of your wonderful restored relationship, of the wonderful hope of heaven. And Father, we pray that we will cherish that message, that we will faithfully speak it to one another and faithfully guard it for the generations to come. Amen.